I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. And I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Look at that. We're starting off our, our field trip, our well, What's Next field trip already, with a, a site that I've yet to see ever in my life in person, a hummingbird. That would make it your life bird. Oh. Wait, a life bird? What, what? A life bird. The first time that you see an individual species uh, for the very first time, birders refer to that bird being uh, your life bird. So the first time you saw that species for the first time in your life. Yeah. So now you, get, you got your lifer, ruby-throated hummingbird, which is our one hummingbird that visits uh, the eastern United States. Oh, I'm already, I'm already thrilled for what's to come. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be good. This is going to be a lot of fun. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next. My name is Lorenzo Rodriguez, and this is a special one today. Uh, we're nearing the end of summer here in western New York. I feel like sh summers get shorter and shorter out in these parts. But you know what? We, we, we are people that really, truly enjoy the limited time that the summer offers. And today, what's next is leaving the confines of our, of our studios in, in downtown Buffalo to venture out into the great wilderness, the wilderness right in our backyard. Literally 15 minutes away from downtown Buffalo is a gem of, a, of, of nature out here in Western New York. I'm here at the, the Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve. And I think I've got one of the better tour guides out there in the business, at least in the Western New York area, Mr. Marcus Rostin, how are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve. Marcus, you are a environmental educator. You've been doing this now for almost 10 years now. And as an environmental educator, I mean, I think it's in the name, but what does that entail? Yeah, an environmental educator uh, is somebody who uh, is a naturalist, usually engaged in the natural world, and what they do is they communicate that science and they connect people to uh, their natural world, their environment, uh, or scientific uh, principles and processes. You're a facilitator because really I feel like anybody and everyone should be able to just go out to nature and kind of just explore and I mean it's great to have a tour guide because I, I, I have a limited knowledge base of, of animals and wildlife but not of Western New York. I'm, I'm I'm excited to hear what you have to say about what we're going to see, hopefully see, because we're here on a, on a Wednesday morning in, in the mid, middle of August, and hopefully you said that mating season for birds is, is done and over with. Yeah, in terms of birds, this is a little bit more of a quieter season. As much as we don't want to admit it, uh, the birds have acknowledged that fall is just around the corner. So our birds, they're getting ready. Uh, instead of hanging out and singing their hearts out, they're getting ready to a lot migrate south for the winter. So things get a little bit quieter this season, but we'll see what we can hear out here. So as far as Western New York wilderness and the wildlife out there, Seasonally, how does it how does it differ? 
In terms of birds, we are a four, just like, you know, we like to refer to Buffalo being a four season uh, region. Uh, the birds respond in that same way, depending on what season it is, is going to greatly influence what birds you see around here. Uh, during the summer is birds breeding season. So that is when you have the resident birds that uh, will come up to western New York from as far south uh, as the southeastern United States, Central America, some even travel as far as South America. And they come and make western New York their home for the summer. Uh, so they hang out here during that uh, season and that is who you are likely to find. As fall moves through, those birds, they start to pick up after they have their young, their young grows up, they're able to fly, uh, fend for themselves, they start to head back south uh, so. The swallows go back to Capistrano. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's a very dated reference. I'm sorry about that. I, but that's the only thing, the only song I know about uh, uh, bird migration, but that, that's what they do in the fall, right? Yeah. And then in fall, you start to see those uh, transitory birds that might just pass through Western New York uh, for a season uh, as they are moving to their, uh, you know, their wintering habitat, essentially. They'll stop over in Western New York. So uh, we are located on the Atlantic Flyway, which is a term that describes the paths that huge uh, quantities of birds take as on their migration journey. So there are a couple of major flyways in the United States. We here in Western New York, we're located on the Atlantic Flyway. So in the fall, we start seeing birds move through here, coming uh, from the boreal forest in Canada, uh, all the way up to the Arctic Circle. They'll start moving through Western New York on their journey south. Uh, winter, uh, we start to see our birds that are year-round residents, so things quiet out a little bit more. We have our chickadees, our cardinals hanging out, but Western New York happens to be a world-class birding destination in the winter is where we get our claim to fame. We get all like Arctic birds that come down yes. down here. They migrate down down to our somewhat milder temperatures compared to what they're used to. We're used to uh, calling people snowbirds in Western New York that head down to Florida uh, We've got for, our the, own. for the winter. We've got our own. We are the, those birds, Florida. <laughs> so for those Arctic species like snowy owls, they will come to spend their winters here in Western New York where we have always flowing fresh water uh, thanks to our Niagara River and Niagara mm -hmm. Falls, a huge food source. So uh, we are essentially that bird's winter paradise. So we'll have birders come from around the world to Western New York just to see those birds that hang out here in the winter. And then as soon as spring comes, they're moving back on and we start to cycle over again. I love it. Well, this is, our, this is just the beginning. Follow us, come along with us. We're going to take a little auditory excursion here on what's next at Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserve. Let's do this. Let's. People might be asking, our listeners might be asking, all right, why are we doing a nature show? But recently, the reason that, that I came to you, Black Birders Week. It was, it's a thing now that I think it's in its fourth year, correct? Yes. Uh, just this year in 2023. And the, the genesis of Black Birders Week in particular was something that, that drew my attention. A gentleman by the name of Christian Cooper, a birder himself, a, a person of color, out in Central Park, just minding his own business, watching birds, and got into into an altercation with with a white lady in, in Central Park. Claimed that that he was attacking her when all he said was basically very politely, "Hey, could you just leash up your dog?" And what came about from that was, well, I'll let you explain it because you're you're pivotal in the, in the Western New York side of of the Black Birders movement. 
Yeah, uh, I serve on the planning team for uh, Blackbirders Week, so uh, very proud to represent Buffalo in that. And yeah, Blackbirders Week, born out of uh, a horrific event in Central Park, uh, but recognizing that clearly people are viewing black people in nature as a threat, um, we realize that we need to bring awareness to the fact that black people are birders, black people are out in the wild, we're not a threat, nothing to call the cops on, and to increase this representation in a field that happens to be very white historically. Uh, so Black Birders Week uh, mobilized primarily as a social media campaign. This is happening in 2020 uh, big, in the midst of the pandemic. Big national, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it was the same day, unfortunately, the, the passing of George Floyd. So it was yes. big, big day for, for just racial tensions in, in America. And the good here is that it's, it's galvanizing a community, a community that's been there, but I would say, I mean, I would ask you not to, not to, not to engage in stereotypes, but did you, did you think that the, the Black Birders movement increased the, the, did it bring out more people of color? Twofold, yes. To bird? I believe Black Birders Week uh, brought the uh, the hobby, the uh, the pastime of birding uh, to more audiences than ever before. Um, and not only did it increase that awareness, but it also uh, connected a lot of people who <laughs> were uh, birding previously. Uh, black Birders Week, a thousand percent, has increased uh, the visibility of black birders. And I have met so many other black birders that uh, I didn't know before the week existed. I thought uh, before Black Birders Week existed, I only knew one other birder uh, that was black in Western New York. Uh, since this has started, I have now know uh, we had a handful of us uh, that have been out there doing their thing. But, uh, you know, this, it wasn't until this week and the visibility and the connection that it brought about uh, that allowed um, just for more people to see themselves in the birding community, uh, engaged us. Uh, to each other, to more collaborative efforts, and now uh, just so proud of how big the event's grown and how it is now a uh, recurring yearly uh, event that is just getting bigger and bigger each year and bringing more and more people into uh, the birding movement. You love to hear it. Something, something good out of, out of a negative situation. I looked up uh, Danielle, Bellany, Sheridan, Alfred. I think those are Two of the, are those two of the start the people that started it or there was yeah there was a whole uh, a whole group of people that came together I wasn't as involved with the national group at that point uh, I was really excited uh, to host uh, some uh, events locally and it was you kind been of holding it down before the movement started you were already <laughs> you were you were blackbirding before it was, it was a thing. Yeah, and then I was really excited to, you know, when to see this movement, I uh, started doing what I call, you know, rogue Black Birder Week <laughs> events before I uh, got officially affiliated with the uh, planning committee and just to try and, yeah, get more uh, Black Birding events happening here in Western New York. And uh, now, uh, just this past year, we had uh, two walks that happened, one here at Rhinestein Woods, uh, one in the city of Buffalo at River, uh, Riverfront uh, Park in Erie County. Uh, so it's really exciting to see, like you mentioned, how much good has come out of such a uh, terrible, uh, terrible event. Well, we're sitting, we're, we're standing right, right now on like a, a, a pier or a, a, a ob observation, yeah. observation deck, per se, uh, overlooking a very, very serene pond, right? Yes, yeah, so... And I keep hearing, I hear a sound. There that, it is. 
What is it? It's like a, it's like a str strum of a guitar. Yes, that's exactly what I uh, call it. It's like plucking the string of a banjo. What you're hearing, that is a green frog, a uh, specific species. Uh, not only are birds fun to listen to their sounds to identify them, but you can also do the same thing with frogs. Each individual frog uh, makes an, a unique call. So we're hearing the green frog chorus right now. Just to keep painting a, a yeah. further picture for our listeners, this, this pond is very, like I said, very serene, very colorful because it's a bunch of lilies with a very bright pink flower on, on, on every other lily, it seems like. Yes, this is uh, so we got to talk about aptly the fauna, awesome. named lily pond uh, after its most populous plant that you see growing on the surface. All of those water lilies uh, and and lily pond, they are so numerous that is lily on top of lily looking out into a sea of pink flowers. It is a local favorite uh, of people coming to visit these flowers when they, uh, when they bloom. And they're an interesting flower. Uh, they open up right now. We're at the prime uh, in the middle of the day. They open up and then towards the end of the day, all these oh. flowers, they close up overnight and they actually shut. So some people, uh, the best time to view these flowers between 10 and four o'clock because before that they're usually closed. So we're right here that. in their prime. So they're, they're, they, they, they wake up and, and go to sleep like the rest of us. Yeah, I which no the idea. lilies, they also have, you know, an interesting history. Technically, they are what we consider to be an invasive species here at Reinstein Woods. Uh, they were planted by Julia Boyer Reinstein, uh, the wife of Dr. Victor Reinstein. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they are historic to the property, we do leave them here on Lily Pond, but they are uh, in a, a pretty aggressively growing plant, as you can see, as they pretty much take over this entire surface of the pond here. You touched on two things that I was eventually going to get to, but one, the founder of, of this nature reserve, Dr. Victor Reinstein, and, and his wife, they donated, what, 300 acres to Western New York? Yeah. How, so did, how did the preserve come about and its history? The history of this land, this is the ancestral home of the Wenro Native American people. Uh, the Then the Senecas moved in and the Haudenosaunee the, were you know, living here. And when European settlers and colonists moved in, this land was developed uh, or subdivided by the Holland Land Company. Mm -hmm. uh, and a man named Dr. Victor Reinstein uh, was tasked with essentially selling off a lot of the holdings that were here along Como Park Boulevard of uh, the Bellevue company, they were speculating that an electric trolley was coming to Chictawaga, so they bought up a lot of this land, but when that never happened, they hired a lawyer, Dr. Victor Reinstein, who happened to be a lawyer, a doctor, and a uh, self-taught uh, engineer. A jack-of-all-trades. Yeah. <laughs> so he was charged with selling off a lot of the plots of land here along Como Park Boulevard, but he kept a huge chunk of land right in the center as his own personal uh, nature preserve. A lot of the area that we are standing in right now was formerly farm field after it was settled. Uh, the forests were cleared and this looked like one big farm, except for one portion of the preserve that is old growth trees uh, that have not seen you know, the plight of logging as heavily. But out here was farmland and Dr. Victor Reinstein is who dug all of these ponds. He made all eight miles of the roads and trails that go through here and he planted uh, thousands, tens of thousands of trees here in the preserve and he is who is the architect uh, that really transformed Reinstein Woods back to uh, the state that it may have looked uh, naturally before uh, it was farmed.
So as Dr. Reinstein made this his own nature preserve, he uh, fell in love with the land so much that he wanted to keep this land permanently protected. So as he was getting up in age, he started negotiations. Uh, he tried giving it to the town, tried giving it to the county, but uh, the stipulations or regulations prevented them from taking it on. And that is when New York State, the Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, they stepped in. A department you know fairly well. <laughs> fairly well. Uh, and they stepped in to take over this land to forever protect it uh, as a nature preserve. So. This land is now forever going to be in a natural state. Two-thirds of Rheinstein Woods is open for, to the public. You can come and walk on our trails. And to honor Dr. Reinstein's wish of having this be a nature sanctuary, we have one-third of the preserve marked as a sanctuary where mm. people are not permitted to be back there, and it is just purely a home for uh, wildlife. So. That is how Rheinstein Woods came to be. And today we operate as an environmental education center. We have uh, a building where we offer uh, public programming, school programming. Uh, we do in-school uh, trips, so we'll, we'll go to your classroom. Uh, we do as much as we can to engage people with the ecology, the nature of Rheinstein Woods, and just to connect people to the ecology of Western New York in general. We do have one bird right up in this tree one of our resident birds. Uh, it's a small bird about the size of a chickadee or a sparrow, which it happens to be. This bird is called a song sparrow. It's making really small chip noises right now and not giving us its song. But its song, it's a very long and melodic song that is the soundtrack of, what well, I like to think of the soundtrack of our bushes that are around our wetland areas. And usually they're calling uh, all throughout the summer. Of course, this one must know that it's being recorded. It's being a little shy. But it's a small bird, brown colors, uh, has brown streaks going down the front of it. <laughs> a lot of beginner birders, they dislike the sparrows because it's a lot of minute details that tell them apart. Usually they call them LBBs or little brown birds, and they keep on walking. So. <laughs> LBB. <laughs> well, Marcus, I, I mean, you are an avid yeah, environmentalists you know you certainly know your birds your your flora your fauna but as far as birds what's your favorite bird i know that's a that's a it's a hard question very hard question for somebody with a, a wealth of knowledge like yourself but uh and i think i gave a new answer uh every time i answer <laughs> it too so uh for the record this might be different no. um I think one of my favorite birds is a really quirky bird called the American woodcock. Ah. Uh, it is a uh, football-shaped bird that looks like a shorebird that should be running around the beaches. It has this really long bill, a three-inch bill, um, but instead of finding it along the beaches, it likes hanging out in our forested areas. And it has a really funny walk. It does like a weird little bobble back and forth <laughs> as it walks, trying to shake up all of the earthworms in the ground that it then uses that big bill to probe. Um, and it has... I um, wish folks could really see this because <laughs> you, you mimicked the movement very well. Like you got, yeah, you got it down. It's like, a, it's like a strut, kind of like a, yeah. a, wa a wobbling strut. Not you going anywhere, can... not needing to go anywhere fast. <laughs> um, it has a beautiful call. That. I was about to say, you, I, I, you have a good knowledge of birds, but I have a good knowledge of bird note. That was your bird note episode. That was, yes. You did the, the woodcock. This is Bird Note. I'm Marcus Rostin. 
and while working for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, I assisted in a study into the behaviors of one of my favorite birds, the American woodcock. What I loved about it was with every bird note episode, you get the, the bird song. And the woodcocks one, you, you tried making it very well, but I'll, I'll let you do it. All right. Yeah. It's a peent. It's up. Peent. 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 It just hangs out in the bushes. It just <laughs> lets out that peent call uh, right as the sun is setting. Um, and it's just uh, a bird with so much character. Uh, it has a beautiful sky dance that it does as its mating routine. After it lures in uh, its mate with that painting, they fly up straight into the sky. They circle together uh, in a giant uh, fashion. And then they come plummeting back to the ground together. Uh, and that is how they do their mating dance and their ritual for courtship. So very, very cool bird. I think that's probably my favorite because I got to, when I was working with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, like we talked about in that bird note episode, we put backpacks on that bird to track their migration. So I got to see in real time how birds connect us up here in Western New York to, in that case, uh, the ocean shores of South, uh, North Carolina, where that bird hung out uh, over winter. So, Now, Marcus, uh, I wanted to also mention, well, one of my favorite birds is, is definitely a tropical bird. It's a toucan. Hmm. Which I just, that's, that's, I'm from a tropic area, originally South Florida, so it's got to be a tropic bird. But also, I love owls. So I have to go back into my, my past to the uh, one of our one of my former shows that I worked on, the Dan Libertard show with Stu Gotts, we had an animal expert from Zoo Miami named Ron McGill. Shout out to Ron McGill. And one of the great revelations that he gave that still sticks with me to this day, owls are always seen as this very wise, old, smart creature. You know, in reality, one of the dumbest birds around. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to throw shade at the owls, well, but nope. in terms of, uh, intelligence and birds, uh, I would not say that owls are, <laughs> uh, that species that I would put up there. Uh, they're nothing, uh, they don't have the same, you know, intellectual prowess as, you know, your corvids. So your, your ravens, your crows, your jays. You don't think of those, but those are the African greys. The parrots are like among the smartest. They can identify like micro machine cars and whatnot. But then these owls get this rap of being so smart. Unless you watch Winnie the Pooh. Unless you watch Winnie the Pooh. The owl and Winnie the Pooh, it lets you know that, you know, there's not, they're not very wise up there. <laughs> that, he did keep to himself a lot. He was very much like a very rec recluse almost. And, and, but yeah, owls, good PR agents for them. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, Rheinstein Woods, great place in Western New York to the come owl. and see owls. Right? We have uh, throughout the year, great horned owls visit and nest here. Barred owls will visit and nest here and Eastern screech owls. Uh, so three owls, the species of owl that could be seen pretty regularly here at Rheinstein Woods. So the fun thing about birds is they make you stop whenever they're around. And what we're looking at is we're looking into Lily Pond and we have the top predator of our ponds hanging out. And here at Rheinstein Woods, the top predator of our ponds is really tall, long legs, uh, silver blue body with a giant bill. And it is our great blue heron that hangs out with those long stilt legs and hunts for pretty much anything that is unsuspectingly swimming by. 
It feeds on our fish, frogs, salamanders, almost anything that that heron can get into its mouth. Now, like most herons, very long, elongated, skinny neck. Yes. That that thing can can take down a frog. That thing could take easily take that. I've seen That's it impressive. swallow a 12-inch catfish. Uh, they will. You'd be surprised when they open that mouth what they can fit down that throat. That's beautiful. Nice. I, I doubt we're going to hear from the blue heron because he's too busy looking for grub. They're generally a pretty quiet bird. You usually only hear herons when they kind of get spooked and they'll take off off of a pond and let out like a giant grunt. Uh, almost sounds like pterodactylish. But we here in western New York, we have. Well, what herons are, they are a colonial nesting bird. So while we see this one heron here by itself, they do nest in colonies, in groups. And here in Western New York, our largest, what we call a rookery, happens to be right here in the Niagara River, the archipelago of islands coming off of Grand Island, that is uh, Strawberry Island, Motor Island, both have nesting colonies of herons. So those green, they have, well, great blue herons, great egrets, and black crowned night herons, they'll hang out in those rookeries. And then at the beginning of the day, they fly out into the various ponds, wetlands in Western New York, find their feeding hole. They'll hang out, hunt for the day, and then they'll typically fly back to their rookery and hang out in a colony. So when you see herons by themselves, they're usually hunting and fishing, but they actually nest all together. And that is when you hear herons the loudest. They sound almost like you're going into Jurassic Park when you're in those rookeries, those birds squawking. Ah. Yeah, they're featherless. Uh, they're pooping all over the place. It smells, it's loud, it's gross. But uh, that is, you know, a really cool environment to be in to see, you know, how those birds do it. And uh, yeah, we're lucky to have that rookery right here in, uh, you know, in the city of Buffalo. Uh, what other places do you, would you recommend to our listeners to, once they, once they, they dip their feet into the, into the, into the, the small reserves that we have, ooh, is that a water snake? That is a common garter snake that uh, just slithered off of the path into the brush off of the side. They love coming out onto the rocks on our trail and they'll hang out and bask in the sunlight. Uh, that's what I tell kids, the best way to find snakes is just as you're walking to listen for them to as they scurry off off to the side Slither as they get Slither away. Yeah, we, we, he was right on the side of the, of the gravel and just slithered away in seconds. We do have common uh, northern water snake here as well. So my biggest hint is if you're seeing them on the side of the trail like this, it's probably a garter snake. If you're seeing it setting itself on a log on a pond, it's probably a water snake. So yeah, we are lucky here uh, in Western New York. We're sandwiched in between two great lakes, uh, the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world. We are right in between. We have that 30, 30 mile long Niagara River that connects them to with uh, ever flowing fresh water, full of food, fish to feed uh, a bunch of wildlife. So yes, we are in a very uh, lucky spot uh, in terms of ecology. So there are many places for people to get out uh, and enjoy the wildlife in Western New York, uh, you know, from here at Rheinstein Woods, you can go down uh, downstream, follow Cayuga Creek all along the Buffalo River. We have a lot of natural habitat areas like Riverfront Natural Habitat Park, Seneca Bluffs, Tift, Tift Nature Preserve right over there, Times Beach Nature Preserve on the harbor. 
you start moving up river you got uh, you know strawberry island motor island that uh, archipelago that you can see from places like aqualane park in the town of tanawanda or head out to grand island and check out Beaver Island State Park to see where that Niagara River splits into two branches carrying all of the water that powers Niagara Falls. Shout out to Grand Island. That's, that's beautiful place with Buckhorn Island State Park, uh, Marjorie Gallagly Nature Preserve, uh, Spicer, Spicer Creek Wildlife Management Area. Grand Island is a nice little, it's the heart of the Niagara River. It's a grand place to live too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So lots of place to check out. You start going into the lower river after the water plunges over Niagara Falls. You have the entire greenway of parks from uh, Whirlpool to Devil's Hole. You start going towards uh, after the escarpment falls down. You have Stella Niagara uh, Preserve uh, owned by the Western New York Land Conservancy. Uh, and then all the way at the mouth, you got Fort Niagara. So all along this corridor and then stretching inland, a whole bunch of wild areas in Western New York to you know explore, to get in touch with you know the wildlife that exists here. We got some of our typical residents hanging out here on Flat Tail Lake. Look like geese. They do. They are. They are our Canada geese. They love hanging out on our lake. Uh, they'll spend their summers here. They'll lay eggs on our islands and uh, and hang nice, on our Nice monochromatic mix of black, white, grays, black bill. I don't know if we can hear it. There's some twittering. All right, am I supposed to call it Xing now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I don't know if folks are going to like our jokes or hate our jokes. <laughs> I know they're going to hate my jokes. Uh, but that what we just heard is the flight call of American Goldfinch. They are commonly heard right now. They are our latest breeder. They just got done breeding in July. And you can hear them flying over. Their flight call sounds like they're saying, potato chip, potato chip, potato chip. As they fly over. Marcus, as we hear the campers off in the faraway distance, uh, I have to ask you, how did you begin your ecological journey? How did you get to becoming an environmentalist? What, what, when did the, the environmentalist bug bite you? Growing up, I just wanted to spend time outside. Uh, I grew up right here in Chictawaga. I grew up to a single mother in a very small apartment. Uh, so outside was my place of solace, my place of adventure exploration. Uh, the abandoned railroad tracks that went between my neighborhood and the airport is where I did my you know, nature exploration. Uh, so it was born from that, that wanting to be outside as much as possible. Uh, I was in Boy Scouts and grew up going to summer camps each year. And it was through all of those experiences that I realized that, hey, 
I could work out here. Uh, it was, I spent each year going, uh, we, my family, we didn't take vacations going anywhere. The only place that we went uh, was for a week camping at Allegheny State Park. So that is my happiest place in the world. And it was there that I went on a walk by a naturalist. The first time someone's ever taken me into the woods and were able to point at plants and give them a name. We're able to pick up a plant uh, and you know tell me that this plant is actually edible. You can eat this, but no one will talk to you for the rest of the day. And of course, being a kid and amazed, I had to take her up on it. Uh, and I ate my first wild onion that day. Oh. And uh, sure enough, nobody wanted to talk to me for the rest of the day <laughs> because they are a very potent plant. So it was from there that I said, wow, I want to be just like her. I want to be able to take people through the woods, know what is around me, be able to interpret that uh, natural environment, and also have my workplace, my office, look like a side of a lake in the middle of a forest floating on a kayak in a wetland. So that is my motivation to go to school for environmental education and interpretation at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry uh, and continue my career path into uh, the natural sciences. I figure you get a you get a different experience every day at the office because That's, depending on the weather, depending on the time of year, you get you, you, you don't know what to expect almost. That's what I love about it. It's always different. Uh, I can do uh, tours or do uh, a school group out here, you know, day after day, back to back, and every single time is a unique experience. Um, it's always changing, and that is why I absolutely love this field so much uh, because nothing. <laughs> Nothing is static. It's ever-changing with the seasons, with uh, you know, new environmental challenges that uh, you know, need to be managed. There's always something to, be, something to do, something to happen, a new thing to learn. You're, you can never say that you know everything out here. I'll be the first to say I, don't, I do not know everything out here. Uh, but there's always something new to learn and to be engaged with. So yeah, that is why I absolutely love this field, love having you know, the outdoors be a workplace. You also don't have to be John James Audubon to come out and enjoy bird watching. And I mentioned that name, this is a probably a very clunky segue, but to a very serious topic. But recently in the news, there was the controversy surrounding, as the aforementioned John James Audubon. The, well, it was, it was, it was named, after named after him, him. 50 years after, uh, oh, after he died. Okay, well, so he didn't even start it. It was the, 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 the premier bird bird conservation, conservation organization organization hmm. in america is named after john james audubon which later was found out to be have some very questionable views on on enslavement was an enslaver himself and naturally uh, uh, we we the, the the conversation then turned to what do we do with the, the name of this foundation the society uh as a person of color what are your what are your thoughts on that it was it was determined that they were going to keep the name as is yeah, so the, 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 the national chapter, uh, I am not uh, an official uh, member of either the national chapter uh, of the Audubon Society. They do have a whole bunch of local affiliate groups. Uh, I do work uh, with uh, our local Buffalo Audubon Society, but there is now, you know, thanks to Black Birders Week and the... I, or the movement of birding getting a little bit more conscious to these um, issues and grappling with this idea of having uh, an enslaver be the name of this conservation organization, which you know wasn't started by him. It was named after him. Uh, and you know, 
is that a good fit going forward with how much we know about his history, uh, his views that were anti-abolitionist, anti-emancipation, and, you know, do we want this person to be the name of an organization? If you ask me, I'm going to say, well, the reason that they say that they want to keep it is, you know, everyone thinks of Audubon being synonymous with birds whenever you hear that, but from my point of view, I talk to younger generations and say, who is Audubon? And they say, I don't know what you're talking about. That was a guy's name. It was actually just this morning I was talking to somebody about, you know, Audubon. I'm like, wait, that's an actual guy? Uh, so I am a... It's not a roadway in Germany? <laughs> or that's running through, you know, the North Towns along UB. Um, so I am of the view of... <laughs> There's no reason to fight to keep the name of an enslaver as the name of an organization that uh, is, should be working to bring everybody into this movement. So our, I don't even think that the name Audubon going forward is as, uh, as a, that connector to people as it may have been back when the birds of North America and Audubon's work probably was the way that people were getting into the field of birding. We've moved past that now, uh, so I am of the belief that why hold on to this name when it has so much connections to such a, uh, a dark history and it doesn't work to bring more people into the world of birding, bring more people into the world of conservation. If anything, it detracts from that mission of bringing everybody on board. And we have very large scale problems that we have to tackle in the environmental world, in bird conservation. So I think we need as many people coming into the movement as possible. And holding on to the name of an enslaver, I do not think empowers more people to see themselves in that movement. And Marcus, what would you recommend to amateur people that are on the fence about entering the, the, the hobby, the, the, the what is bird birding? I mean, the first thing is to recognize that you're welcome out here, uh, that you are designed, you're meant to be in these natural and wild spaces. A lot of times that first hurdle is the apprehension of just getting, getting out, of getting out. Uh, you know, people might be afraid of what's out here, getting lost. And a lot of those fears um, are valid, come from, you know, places that uh, you know, they deserve to be there a lot I mean, of times. We saw a garden snake. Yeah. That, that was pretty intimidating. But at the same time, you know, uh, just getting over those barriers and getting out, I think, is the first step. Uh, and the more time you spend outdoors, the more it just starts to, you know, wrap its arms around you and bring you right in. Uh, and it starts to be, you know, a really slippery slope to where I want to learn what, you know, that one bird that I saw this one time, I want to learn what that bird is. And suddenly it turns into, whoa, wait, I saw a couple of other birds while I was out there. And just slowly add, uh, you know, to your species knowledge, individuals, uh, and you'd be surprised on just that amount of time. It doesn't all come at once. You can't just go out in the woods and suddenly expect to know everything. But the more time you just steep yourself into it. Like any uh, good journey, you start one spot and you don't know where it takes you. And it become, yeah, it starts to become a part of you. And we are living in a time now where there are so many tools that allow you to 
uh, to learn to interpret what you're seeing around you. There are great apps like Merlin for bird ID, uh, iNaturalist for any species ID that if you don't know what something is, you can use your camera and post it and someone will help you identify it. Merlin will identify the calls and songs that birds are singing. So you don't need to have a birder right next to you to start learning some bird calls. You could, uh, you know, there's an app for that. Empowered with those apps and just getting outside uh, is, I think, an uh, easy first step to do to really start falling in love with the wild spaces in, uh, around you. One of the best ways you can get a, a t in touch with that is we have North America's only international birding festival happens right here in Western New York. Birds on the Niagara uh, happens in February, and we put our Niagara River and the birds that overwinter here on a pedestal. It's one of the reasons that we are a globally significant important bird area. So come to the birds on the Niagara. You take a bird walk with me along the Niagara River and realize why are crazy people going up to Niagara Falls <laughs> in the middle of frosty mist coating your face. There is a, you know, a great reason to be out there and it is because of those birds. So join the birds on the Niagara Festival in the winter, get out, uh, maybe walk on your own in the spring, summer. Uh, get, we have public programs here at Rheinstein Woods. Uh, Audubon Society, uh, our local chapter, they have walks, uh, ways to get involved. So I have to acknowledge them as we walk by. The cool part of our older growth section of our forest is that it is a great place to find fungi and mushrooms, which happen to be some of my favorite, where we're looking at. Uh, I thought, I thought we were, you were a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, these fun are guy, fun guy with a fun guy. It's the name of my program coming up in October. Stay tuned, everyone. No, uh, but actually, it's October twentieth. Uh, <laughs> hey, I like that. Plug away, please. Uh, but uh, right here, we're looking at a downed uh, beech tree that has started to have its moss grow on it. But coming out are these shelves of white mushrooms that a lot of people uh, might actually know. These are oyster mushrooms. So if you've ever eaten an oyster mushroom, you can find them growing right here in Western New York on our dead decaying logs. Look like nice little white shelves coming out. Look at this guy. Uh, we have tons of milkweed growing here along our trails. And right here is a monarch caterpillar. Monarch caterpillars, they have a symbiotic relationship, which means that they have, well, essentially just a relationship with milkweed. And that monarch butterflies will only lay their eggs on this uh, group of plants called milkweed. So. If you want monarchs, you need milkweed. And if you don't have uh, one, you'll lose the other. So we Most see... widely known of butterflies, I would say, right? I would say so. It's very popular. It's known for its big migrations. It will migrate from you know, northeast United States all the way to the south uh, into, into Mexico uh, to overwinter. And along the way, it makes a bunch of friends. Everyone loves seeing monarch butterflies. But they are also a good example of... Uh, a flagship species, one that will need protection. We need to work to make sure we improve areas for monarchs, but monarch is really just kind of the poster child because once you start improving the habitat for monarchs, uh, a lot of those other pollinators are also benefited uh, in, in the midst of that. So that's why we like to use uh, monarchs as kind of that uh, 
that gateway organism. Get you in the door, make you fall in love with an insect, fall in love with a caterpillar, fall in love with a group of plants, and then you start to, by extension, start falling in love with more butterflies, more plants, and then suddenly you start to see it for the entire ecosystem it exists in. So, but monarch butterflies are that great species to grab the hearts and the attention of the public and get them to start to love individual species and then start to love their uh, native habitats as well. On the adjacent plant, there's these spiked pieces of fruit. What is that? That is, what you're looking at is the seed pod. So milkweed, uh, it has a beautiful pink flower. After that po uh, flower is pollinated, they turn in. They well, they grow these spiky pods that inside contain uh, a plethora of seeds. So in the next month or so, these pods are going to mature, and then they're going to crack open. All of those seeds have a nice little tuft of fibers to them, and then they will fly off to another location in the wind and uh, populate more milkweed plants. So that milkweed pod is a good identifier characteristic. You have those big leaves that come off that central stalk, and then, as you can see, as I was playing with this one, all that milky substance that comes out, mm. you can see that's why it gets that name milkweed, because as uh, growing throughout its stems and its leaves, when it's broken, it exudes that milky substance. And that is what those caterpillars like to eat. And because those caterpillars are feeding on this milk from the milkweed, that actually makes those caterpillars toxic and unpalatable to birds and other organisms that would otherwise eat them. So that's why they have those nice bright color colorations on them to essentially give a warning saying, hey, I'm toxic. Don't come over here and eat me. Don't mess with me or else you're going to pay. To humans as well or? Probably. I don't know. I haven't tried. <laughs> And as far as any other, like, are there any other exclusives like that? Like you mentioned the, 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 the ducks that migrate to, to Grand Island, the wacky zany ducks. Um, is there anything else like that that's exclusive to this area? You mentioned in the wintertime also we get a lot of ar Arctic birds, but I, I feel like a lot of, along, the, along this area we'll get a lot of that. But anything specific to us out here? The, our claim to fame is uh, because of actually a group of birds that a lot of people disregard and they don't like. I've heard them call them really mean names like rats with wings. Ah, but yes. the, reason, the reason that Western New York is a globally significant important bird area is because of our diversity of gulls. You can a see them in the, in the falls, in, in, that, in the PBS Nature episode, yes. that was a big portion of that. Uh, we have one of the greatest diversity of galls that you can see in one area in the entire world. We have 18 species of gall can be found along the Niagara River corridor uh, throughout a given year. So we have, uh, you know, this idea that galls are just, they're a parking lot bird, a bird that's stealing my french fries at the beach. <laughs> but people will travel across the world to come to Niagara River because you can see, uh, you know, our typical ring-billed gulls are herring gulls, but we have little gull, sabin's gull, uh, mew gull, uh, the largest gull in the entire world, great black-backed gulls hang out along our river. They are the size of eagles. Uh, we have birds that will come over from Europe, uh, our lesser blackback gulls. They will come across the Atlantic uh, to hang out here in uh, the rest of New York along the Niagara River. So what is unique here is that diversity of gulls. And great place is the birds on the Niagara Festival. Get a taste for all of those birds that otherwise, um, you know, for general public might not see the value in 
what they would call a seagull. But those birds, they are a really cool, fascinating group of organisms, and they put the Buffalo and Niagara River on the map. Got it. Oh. We're listening for is a bird that actually says its name at the top of its lungs. It's screaming, Pee-wee! Pee-wee! It's a small, minuscule bird that uh, has gray markings, nothing really too distinct, uh, pretty drab looking, but it gets to the top of its treetops and it will scream its name, Pee-wee! Pee-wee! Across the entire woods looking for a mate. It's just called the Pee-wee? An eastern wood peewee is its formal name. Eastern, eastern wood peewee. There are other species of peewee, uh, but they are the only peewee that we have here uh, in western New York. On the other side of, of the coin of wildlife management, we have the endangered uh, species. What do we have out here in western New York that we should be protecting, that should, we should be on the lookout for? We have a, a bunch of species that... Uh, you know, need protection. It all depends, like, what group of organisms. For birds, right now, uh, one of the birds that is, uh, it's kind of common here in western New York, but in terms of statewide, we actually have the most significant numbers, and it can be found right along our waterfront, our common terns, uh, which, despite their name being common tern, they are a species of special concern here in New York State, uh, that we're working to increase their habitat along the Niagara River to give them more uh, places to nest, uh, we have uh, rare and rare threatened endangered turtles like Blanding's turtle that are right here in our watershed or spiny soft shell turtles. People uh, will probably be surprised to know that right in Ellicott Creek that flows right by UB, there are actually spiny soft shell turtles that will hang out right on the banks of that creek uh, that are suffering from, you know, increased destruction of their habitat, habitat loss, water pollution. Uh, but you can see them right here. My favorite animal, which I did already say woodcock was there for birds, but my favorite animal is likely the lake sturgeon, which is an ancient dinosaur-like fish that can grow six feet tall, weigh over 250 pounds, live for 150 years. They're right in our Niagara River. Uh, and while they're that giant fish that seem imposing, they actually don't even have any teeth in their mouth. They just have little soft suction cup lifts, lips, and they have little whiskers that go down from their nose and a uh, very charismatic fish. But they are also one that is uh, suffering and is a threatened and endangered species that uh, needs our help to to uh, preserve. So there are a lot of those, uh, those gems that we have here in Western New York that do uh, are looking for our protection and a lot of organizations they are working to protect and, uh, and restore them. What are some of the, the uh, I guess the premier conservation groups out here in Western New York? Thanks Pee Wee. Great question. Uh, Premier. There are a lot of conservation groups that are working. Uh, besides, besides the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Conservation. I mean, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, they are our New York State agency that is working to protect our land, air, and water. You also have the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm -hmm. The Lower Great Lakes Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office is right here in western New York. They are working on studying our native fish, our lake sturgeon, our lake trout. Those are two species of concern that they're working to restore, but they're also uh, on the front lines 
sides of aquatic invasive species detection. So Fish and Wildlife Service, you have our nonprofit groups that are working to protect land like the Western New York Land Conservancy, uh, the Buffalo River Land Trust is also working like right in the city of Buffalo. People like Western New York PRISM, uh, which is the Western New York Partnership for Regional Invasive Species Management, they help give assistance to a lot of natural areas like Rhinestein Woods to manage just those invasive species. They have strike crews that work all summer uh, working on terrestrial species. They have boat stewards that work at each individual boat launch throughout Western New York. And there's a program I used to run where we have educators standing at boat launches and checking boats as they come in and out, educating boaters to make sure they're not transferring species mm -hmm. from one body of water to another. So because a lot of our challenges in the environment are so multifaceted, uh, we are lucky in Western New York that we have so many environmental groups that have missions that are unique, but overlapping enough that it makes this nice quilt and patchwork of organizations that are protecting our wild areas and our wildlife. Now among the trees, and, and, and they stand out a little bit because they, I assume these are some sort of pine? Yes. Uh, technically, this is some sort of spruce. What ah. you're looking at is a Norway spruce tree. Uh, these ones were planted by Dr. Victor Reinstein. Uh, a lot uh, where we are, we are, are in a more temperate broadleaf forest. So you're typically seeing your deciduous trees, your regular leaf trees in uh, the Western New York area. Uh, however, Dr. Victor Reinstein did plant uh, I think like 30,000 conifer trees uh, here at Rhinestein Woods, which uh, is a little unique for the area and is really useful for wildlife. And that's one of the reasons that we are such an important area for wildlife is in the middle of winter when all of our broadleaf trees, they lose those leaves. The only thing that is left green are our spruce trees, our red pine, those trees that were planted by Dr. Reinstein. And those then give uh, the wildlife that exists here over the winter, their cover. So you'll, a lot of times you'll see white-tailed deer bedding underneath them. I'll find barred owls roosting up top. Uh, and it really gives an extra feature to Rhinestein Woods that uh, surrounding areas don't have and the animals and the wildlife really appreciate. <laughs> There's a blue jay right here. Oh, I love the blue jay. Ready. Beautiful blue bird. It's, it's fun fact, it's technically it isn't blue uh, in terms of having blue pigment. What you're really looking at is the light refracting and reflecting off of the prisms that are contained within its feathers, which uh, give off of that blue. So a lot oh, wow. of times you'll see the blue of blue jays uh, change in character based on uh, the cloudiness or how overcast the skies are. Wow. See, that's there he goes. And thinking of intelligent birds, they are up there with some of our more intelligent birds in the same families of uh, crows and ravens uh, and jays, those group of corvids. The, you know, they have been observed using tools, uh, being able to recognize faces uh, and be able to tr be trained to do things like I swear in the UK, they train them uh, in London to like pick up cigarette butts uh, and things like that. Is that a bird or is it a cat? This is a call that gets people confused. It actually led to the name of this bird. This bird is called an, a gray cat bird because its song is very mechanical and melodical, but its call sounds almost like a cat meowing in the bushes.
every so often people will say, wait a minute, is that a bird in the bush or is that a cat meowing at me? Well, we are back at the education center here at Rheinstein Woods. So that I think means the conclusion of our fun little jaunt. Into, We've flown into full circle. This has been great. Well, I for one have had a great deal of fun. <laughs> I figured it was gonna be fun. It's been that, it's lived up to it. I hope, like I said, that our audience has had as much fun as we have had on this, this excursion. But Marcus Rustin, thank you so very much for being our guide, for taking us around and showing us this beautiful sanctuary that we have here in our, in our midst of Western New York. Uh, I thank you as, as the host today. Dallas, thank you for joining us. You can see some of uh, our shots hopefully online on WBFO's many multiple social streams on Instagram, YouTube, at WBFO.org as well. But thank you all for joining us today on this very special What's Next field trip edition, I guess. Summer field trip edition. Thank you so very much, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing everybody in our wonderful wild spaces that we have here in Western New York. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. Pink. Pink.